Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a very interesting uh, founder that we're going to be uh, interviewing here today. Very interesting because obviously, you know, building and scaling a company is like uh, going and reaching the peak of the of the mountain and it's and it's all about the journey, but but this is definitely someone that uh, not only is uh, operating and executing and and being on that journey, but also he has actually climbed Mount Everest. So it doesn't get better than that. So I guess Without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Chase Lockmiller. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. I appreciate you having me. So originally you were born in Denver, Colorado. So how was uh, life uh, growing up there? Growing up in Denver was was great. You know, it's, it's a really, uh, you know, in the Denver area, it's really, really beautiful uh, right there, the foothills of uh, the Rocky Mountains. And, you know, I always grew up uh, you know, around the mountains and, you know, spending a lot of time in the mountains and uh, mountaineering kind of became a hobby uh, over the course of time. And it was something that, you know, I really enjoyed doing. And um, over, you know, one, one of my life dreams was to climb Mount Everest, which, which uh, as, you, as you mentioned, I was successful in doing in, in 2018. Um, Got it. And then, and then, at what point, like, were you always like uh, into math and and physics? I mean, was there like anyone in your family also that uh, that that was like this, or anyone in your family that was an entrepreneur that perhaps led you to to what you're doing, you know, today with that entrepreneurial mentality? Or or tell us, you know, like uh, who influenced you on on those fronts? Yeah. So I I you know I I always had an affinity for for math. It was just something I. I loved doing uh, when I was a kid, and uh, it drove me to study math uh, as an undergraduate uh, at MIT. I studied math and physics, and uh, it was something I was, you know, super passionate about. And I really liked, you know, the problem-solving aspect of it. Uh, and you know, fr- from there, I, I uh, uh, you know, I got into the world of quantitative finance, which is basically. Uh, building these large-scale machine, lear- machine learning algorithms uh, to, to produce price forecasts for various securities. Uh, and then I developed a bunch of different algorithms that would uh, basically capitalize on those predictions in sort of an automated fashion. So, uh, you know, I spent about 10 years of my career doing this. 
And in doing so, when you're doing this this research, I, uh, you know, you, you spend a, a a lot of compute resources uh, training those those large scale machine learning algorithms. And uh, you know, that was that was kind of you know what I was super interested in uh, after leaving university. Um, How did you develop the love for that? Chase, I mean, was there anyone in your family that was into any of this stuff, or or how how did you get the the influence for this? Uh, you know, not really. I, I uh, it was just kind of, you know, from the time I was very young, you know, I just I just love solving math problems. Um, it sounds kind of bizarre, but uh, you know, when I was when I was like five years old, I'd come home from school and uh, you know I was I was really obsessed with solving those uh, you know sheets of you know, a hundred multiplication problems and I'd make my mom time me and I'd try to get faster times. And, uh, you know, it's just something I just, I, I really loved when I was a kid. So, um, very cool. So obviously here you get into predictive models and into machine learning after, after school. And I guess, especially, you know, like now there's like a lot of hype and a lot of noise around machine learning and, and AI. So, so what is really machine learning and what does it look like when that transitions into AI? Sure. So, you know, machine learning, uh, it's, you know, these are all kind of like different, different terms for, uh, you know, basically building these predictive, predictive models, uh, like statistical inference or, um, and, uh, what you're doing when you're, when you're, you know, solving one of these problems really is, uh, you're taking a very large data set, uh, and you know, depending on the structure of that data set, will depend will determine what type of algorithm that you'll typically use. Um, but uh, you'll take a very large data set, and then you'll uh, try to uh, attach some structure to that data set, so that when you see new data that's drawn from uh, a similar uh, a similar similar resource, uh, you can actually infer what that new data means. So uh, you know, this this can range from you know, uh, uh, you know, taking a whole bunch of pictures and and taking labels on those pictures and then determining uh, what's in those pictures and you can kind of teach your computer to you know kind of understand what's what's in a picture so that when they see a new picture they can say, oh, I've seen you know a million pictures of cats before. Um, in this picture, I, I I recognize that I I see a cat here as well. So um, you know, it's that type of uh, that type of problem that you're solving. Um, in the case of Financial modeling, really what you're doing is you're taking these very large time series uh, of historical data. Uh, so, you know, price and trade information, um, you know, how things are moving relative to one another. Uh, and you're basically uh, analyzing that that very large, large data set and that very large time series. Uh, and then you're trying to create new price predictions based on uh, uh, new data streams. And, uh, you know, that that was kind of the problem that I was focused on solving for, for about the first 10 years of my career. Got it. And then you land in Stanford. So why Stanford? I, you know, Stanford's a great, uh, a great university and, you know, they have a fantastic computer science department. Um, I was really excited about, uh, you know, I did the first part of my master's degree at Stanford uh, online. Um, they have a really great program called uh, Stanford Center for Professional Development. And uh, so I was able to kind of do it part time while I was working. Uh, you know, I really like the intellectual challenge of, you know, continuing to uh, sharpen my skills. 
uh, particularly uh, in, in computer science. And, uh, you know, they, there's just a, a lot of innovation happening at Stanford. It's a really cool place. It's a really cool environment just, you know, by virtue of where it sits. Um, it's right at the heart of Silicon Valley. Um, so there's a very entrepreneurial culture there, um, which is, which is really infectious. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the professors there are entrepreneurs themselves. Um, you know, it's not uncommon for people to do a short stint as a professor and then they go, they start a company, uh, they sell the company and then they come back again. Um, so it, it's just, a, it's a really unique place. Um, as far as it relates to artificial intelligence, I think it's, uh, you know, I think a lot of the discoveries and a lot of the, uh, new work, um, you know, Stanford's been a big part of a lot of those things. You know, you look at things like, uh, you know, the Google brain project or the self-driving car project, like all of those were originally Stanford projects, um, that then sort of spun out and, you know, became, uh, Google projects. So, uh, yeah, it's just a really great environment, great professors, great, uh, great students and, and a, a cool place to learn. And obviously, you know, you were mentioning many, many projects that, that come out of there and that, you know, are, are transformed into like giants. Uh, but in this case, you know, like Stanford, you know, it's obviously a very entrepreneurial uh, driven, you know, type of uh, ecosystem. And, and here you actually, rather than starting your own thing, you, you went at it, you know, like with, with, with an existing uh, team, you know, the, the polychain folks that were involved in, in crypto. So, so why crypto? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I was involved in this, uh, you know, quantitative trading world for a long time. And I, I would, you know, get super fascinated by the digital asset and cryptocurrency space. Um, you know, creating a new form of uh, money and a new form of value uh, just really fascinated me that you could have, uh, you know, something that's inherently digitally scarce. When you think about, you know, digital objects, you think about something like a, a PDF file. Um, inherently that's not scarce, right? Because I can take that file, I can copy it from one place on my hard drive to another place on my hard drive. And I can have two copies. Um, what you have with, you know, blockchains and cryptocurrencies is that you can actually create a digitally scarce and unique object, um, that can actually transfer value and transfer wealth between two parties, uh, you know, anywhere on the internet. So, um, to me, that was like a really unique and fascinating innovation. And, uh, you know, I got to know Olaf Carlson Lee, who's the founder of Polychain. Um, and, you know, him and I got along very, very well. Um, I joined him as an early partner at Polychain in, 2000, in uh, early 2017. And, uh, you know, it was just a, it was an exciting time to be involved with the cryptocurrency landscape. Um, you know, there was quite a bit of hype uh, to it and maybe, maybe a little bit too much. Uh, for, for where it was at at that point. But, you know, fundamentally, I'm still uh, very much a, a, a strong believer in, in the ability of uh, these new technologies to disrupt, uh, you know, a lot of different things, uh, money chief among them. And when you started, they had something like 25 million under management and, and something like a billion when you left. So why did you leave when you were at such peak? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I left in, uh, early 2018. Um, the, uh, you know, I think fundamentally I, th there were certain things that I wanted to do. And I, I think, uh, we just decided to kind of go our separate ways. And I, I wanted to be, uh, I think fundamentally I was interested in building a business that wasn't involved in, uh, managing money. Um, 
you know, I had kind of worked as a, a quant portfolio manager for, you know, a long period of time that's, you know, just focused on, uh, you know, generating PL and, uh, you know, sort of generating returns for people. Uh, similar, you know, mentality at Polychain. And uh, I, I think fundamentally at my core, I was really excited about, you know, build, doing something more entrepreneurial where, you know, I, I could, I could build sort of a, a, you know, a tangible business that, that wasn't just, uh, you know, seeking out returns. And what a way to shift gears, Chase. You decided to go and climb Mount Everest. So, so I mean, unbelievable. Like, what, how did you come up with this idea? You know, climbing Mount Everest had always been a childhood dream of mine. I grew up, you know, near the mountains in Colorado and spent a lot of time there growing up. Uh, and I actually had a, I, I had a, I had a teacher uh, in middle school and her husband was a guy named Eric Weinmayer. And Eric was actually the first blind man to climb the seven summits, which are the highest peak on each of the seven continents. And he did it blind. And that was always a very inspiring story to me, you know, having gotten to know Eric. Uh, and so, you know, I was like, I, that's something that I want to do. And I, uh, you know, started climbing some bigger peaks, like after I graduated college and had always just, you know, been involved in, in, in the mountaineering scene as, as sort of a hobby. And, uh, I tried once climbing Mount Everest in 2014, uh, in 2014, th there was a big avalanche that occurred just above the, just above, or in the Kumbu Icefall, just above camp one. Uh, I was down at, uh, or just above base camp, sorry. Uh, and I was at base camp at the time when it happened, it happened in the middle of the night and, and, uh, tragically, uh, 15 Sherpas died in this accident. And after that happened, they basically shut down the mountain. Uh, to the entire uh, climbing community. And uh, so we ended up canceling our expedition and, and going home, but, you know, still had a, you know, strong personal desire to uh, go back. Um, you know, I kind of seeing it firsthand, I, you know, something that you know kept me up thinking about it all the time. And, uh, you know, in 2018, um, you know, I decided to go back and I, I, it felt like a very nice uh, transition for me where, you know, I could have this, uh, be completely unplugged, uh, you know, in the Himalayas and, uh, you know, it, it was, a, it was a really, honestly, it was a very like, uh, trans transformative experience for me personally. Uh, I, you know, I had a lot of time alone to think and to meditate and think about what, what I really wanted to do next and, you know, what I wanted my impact on the world to be. And, uh, you know, fundamentally it was, it was all about wanting to build a business that, you know, would help people in, in some, uh, way, shape or form. And, uh, you know, what I'm most excited about is, is the way in which, uh, uh, the power of artificial intelligence, uh, can influence humanity and, uh, you know, benefit humanity in a positive fashion. And, and, and to we'll, me, we'll continue, we'll continue talking about the business, but I just want to dig in a little bit deeper on the on the Mount Everest experience. How long? Oh, how sure. long were you there? How long were you there? Like the the moment from the moment you landed to the moment you actually touched the peak. Um, let's see. I was there. Uh, I think we got there uh, first week of April, so around I think it was around April fifth, and uh, we summited on uh, May eighteenth. 2018. Wow. Did you, what, so, what were, were you, did you have like, because this is kind of like a, also entrepreneurship on the way up. I'm sure that you had some thoughts about giving up. I mean, what, what, how were those voices interacting, you know, with one another inside your head during that experience? 
Yeah, you know, it was uh, it was it was definitely a challenge. Uh, you know, it's a long expedition. You're you're doing a lot of uh, preparation. You know, it's a, it's a very interesting challenge because it's uh, it's it's more than just a physical challenge. It's a mental challenge too. You're always kind of preparing for the next thing. Uh, honestly, it's very very similar to entrepreneurship, as as you alluded to. Um, you always have to be thinking ahead and planning ahead and, uh, you know, looking at the weather forecast and thinking about what you're going to eat, thinking about, you know, how you're going to uh, move your gear around to, you know, effectively execute your, your goals. And, uh, you know, it was, like I said, in 2014, I think it was eye-opening to me because it gave me and my client partner uh, insight into, uh, you know, what our strategy, what what we really wanted to do. Um, and we, we actually changed our strategy quite a bit when we came back in 2018. And, uh, you know, after what we saw with the Kumbu Icefall, the Kumbu Icefall is kind of the, uh, most, uh, the highest risk area on the mountain. And we really wanted to avoid that. And a lot of the bigger commercial expeditions, uh, tend to do, you know, between, uh, two and three, uh, acclimatization trips up the mountain. So you typically go up to camp one and then maybe you come back to base camp and then you rest there. And then you go up to camp one, up to camp two, and then, and then you go back and you spend a couple days on the mountain and then you come back to base camp. Uh, base camps about 17,500 feet, by the way. And, uh, you know, camp one's about 20,000 feet. Uh, camp, uh, two's, uh, 20, 23,000 or 22,000 feet. Um, and so you're, you're kind of exposing yourself to higher and higher altitudes, um, so that, uh, your body can kind of acclimatize, um, and get used to, uh, these, these higher altitudes with lower oxygen levels. And, uh, so the way, so each of those acclimatization trips, you have to pass through this high risk zone called the Kumbu Icefall. And so a typical expedition, a typical commercial expedition will involve, uh, you know, typically, um, let's see, between six and eight trips through the Kumbu Icefall. Um, and we wanted to just, you know, reduce our risk on that front. And so what we did was we, we planned out this whole other, uh, way where we went and climbed this other peak that was nearby, um, that we viewed as a lower risk, uh, climb than going, going through the Kumbu Icefall called Island Peak. Uh, we spent a good deal of time at the summit there, um, which is, which is a little over 6,000 meters. Um, and, uh, we planned it out where we had one very long acclimatization trip on Mount Everest to, so that we could, you know, store gear and we could, uh, get ourselves acclimatized, but we, we only did one acclimatization trip and then we did our summit push. So, um, to me, this was like a, you know, it was, it was a, it was a fun planning effort, but, you know, a lot of thought went into it and a lot of preparation went into it. Um, and, uh, then when we were on our you know, you can never prepare for everything. Um, and when we were on our final summit push, it was, uh, I actually had some issues with my oxygen mass not working very well, um, which we used, uh, starting at camp three, uh, and, you know, from camp three to camp four, uh, it actually really, uh, you know, exhausted me because it wasn't working properly. Um, I was able to fix it, um, when we were, uh, resting at camp four. And then, you know, camp four is at 8,000 meters. Um, it's the start of what's called the death zone, um, which is basically above 8,000 meters. You know, you should try to minimize the amount of time that you're really spending. Um, and 
you know, on our final summit push, we set out uh, around uh, 10 p.m. and uh, we it, it took us it, you know it took us a little while. We were moving a little bit slower than we had planned. Um, mentally, there was a lot of you know thoughts that were going to my head at this point of like, you know, should I turn around? Uh, do I want to keep going? Um, but you know, I think having the camaraderie of my climbing partner there, uh, you know, a gentleman named Will Sayer, that you know he really uh, you know, just talking to him and, you know, his, his excitement, you know, was kind of, you know, contagious and, uh, you know, it, it really re reinvigorated me and, and got me re-inspired to, uh, you know, push through and, and, and make it up to the summit. Um, I think also, you know, once the sun came up too, it's kind of this new level of energy that sort of, uh, re-energized us. And, uh, you know, we got up to the summit and, you know, we had a very, very beautiful summit day. Uh, we spent about an hour on the summit. It was beautiful blue skies, uh, no wind. Um, and, you know, it's just a really, really incredible sight to behold, you know, kind of from the top of the world up there. Um, but then of course, you know, getting, getting to the top is only half the battle. Uh, you know, uh, there's a, st a statistic, I, I don't know how accurate it is, but people always say that 80% of the accidents happen on the way down as opposed to the way up. Um, people tend to let their guard down. Uh, you know, they feel like their mission has been accomplished and, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we were able to su successfully navigate the, the, the down path as well. So, wow. Well, what an amazing experience chase. So, um, you know, definitely resonates with the life of an entrepreneur and the entrepreneur, uh, the entrepreneurial journey. So, so obviously in this case, you know, you go back home, uh, after this, uh, after conquering your dream, uh, one of your dreams, uh, and then you, you have a chat with, who is now your co-founder. Uh, obviously, he was dealing with some stuff. You met him in, in high school. But I guess, uh, tell us about those problems that, that he started to share with you and how you guys started to envision the future together. Sure. So my, my co-founder is a gentleman named Cully Kavnis. And Cully and I went to high school together in, in Denver. And Cully came from a family that was involved in oil and gas. And you know, his father and his grandfather both, both worked in the industry. And he went and studied geology at Middlebury College. And uh, then he, he, he was a Watson fellow um, traveling around the world, studying global energy resources, everything from, you know, ge geothermal uh, assets uh, in places to, you know, coal power plants in China and, uh, you know, just the whole spectrum of, you know, renewables and, and uh, uh, hydrocarbon fuels. So, you know, after that, you know, he's, he's, he's worked primarily in the, uh, in the energy sector. Um, he worked on the investment banking side of the oil and gas markets, uh, with a boutique investment bank called Petri partners. And most recently he, he was, he was working as the vice president of finance and operations at a, uh, an upstream oil and gas company called Highlands natural resources. And, you know, while he was there, he, uh, you know, they, they had a position in the Denver Julesburg basin where, uh, they had drilled two really great horizontal wells. Um, it was a step out area, um, which means kind of a, a new discovery almost it's, it's a new area of the basin that's being produced. Um, and so they got these wells, they drilled these wells and, uh, they were online and operating and, you know, they were producing oil and, you know, they, uh, were really excited about it and they felt like, you know, the, they had kind of accomplished the really hard part, which was uh, landing those two horizontal wells in the Niobrara Shale. And uh, an issue came up uh, where their gas offtake had, had fallen through. 
And a lot of people don't know this, but, um, you know, depending on, uh, various, uh, 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 oil rich or gas rich areas, uh, you know, people will oil or oil companies will drill wells in, in different areas that, you know, really have very different economic profiles. And, you know, there, there are certain basins that are, are very oil heavy plays, um, where the focus is trying to extract oil and make money from, from the oil production. And then there are other plays like the Marcellus Shale, which is on the eastern United States, that's, that's purely a gas play. Um, so you're focused on trying to extract natural gas. Now, the Denver-Julesburg Basin, that's a, that's a very oil-heavy oil area. Um, and similar, you know, similarly, you, know, you have the, the Permian Basin in West Texas. You have the, the Bakken uh, up in North Dakota and, and western Montana or eastern Montana. And uh, you know, their goal here was to produce oil. Uh, but with that oil production, they actually produced a tremendous amount of natural gas as a byproduct. And that byproduct uh, actually became a nuisance for them, where uh, they actually didn't have a pipeline uh, to take that gas uh, away from their site. And you know, if you don't have a pipeline and you're producing oil, you can take the oil, you can put it on the back of a truck, and you can transport it to an oil refinery. Um, but if you're producing natural gas and you don't have access to a pipeline, you're pretty limited on what you can actually do to transport the gas. So typically what companies do is something called flaring. And flaring is this process where basically they just burn the uh, associated natural gas um, on site uh, into the atmosphere with no beneficial use. And it creates you know, very large emissions footprint um, and you know, society at whole basically isn't able to benefit from, from any of this. It's just literally being set on fire. And when you look at this problem, it's, it's, it's pretty large in scope. Um, there's about 14 and a half billion cubic feet per day that get burned in this capacity. Uh, around the globe. Um, there's over a billion cubic feet a day that get burned uh, in the United States where we actually have, you know, pretty, uh, uh, you know, we're a first world country. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we have, a, you know, emissions restrictions and this, that, and the other. But uh, it is crazy that, you know, the U.S. is one of the largest offenders of, of flaring. Um, but when you look at that from a power perspective, you know, 14 and a half billion cubic feet, it just sounds like a you know, really big number, but, you know, putting it as something uh, really tangible, uh, you know, if you could convert that into power um, using, you know, uh, natural gas fired power production uh, or power plants, um, you know, you're talking about enough power to power the whole continent of Africa. Um, you know, this is a really substantial uh, power resource. And, um, you know, Coley was dealing with this challenge firsthand uh, operating an upstream oil and gas company where, uh, you know, he was having to burn this gas. Uh, he was getting pressure from a number of different places. And, uh, you know, he started looking at alternatives saying, okay, uh, who, you know, if I don't have access to a pipeline, is there someone I can sell the gas to? And it's like, no, no one, there's no buyer. Um, is there someone I can give the gas to? It's like, no, there's, there's no service that you can really give the gas to. And then it was like, okay, is there, is there someone I could pay to take, take this gas off my hands just so you know, I'm, I'm alleviated of this nuisance so I can continue focus on producing oil. And there really wasn't any good options for and, you know, he came to me with this, after I came back from Mount Everest, he, you know, we went on a climbing trip together, um, up in the Rockies and, and he came to me with this problem and, you know, we started discussing it and, you know, my whole career I'd been focused on, uh, you know, between training large scale machine learning models, um, and, uh, you know, uh, working the blockchain and cryptocurrency space where the, uh, the, the, uh, consensus mechanism 
in order to process and validate transactions uh, you know, on, the, on the Bitcoin network, for instance, called proof of work. Uh, it's a very computationally intensive process. Um, so in both those aspects of my career, I've been focused on very computationally intensive processing. And, uh, you know, he came to me with this idea and, uh, or he came to me with this problem and we sort of put our heads together and we came up with this idea of what if we could basically take this very, you know, energy demanding resource and compute and bring it directly to this, uh, very, you know, oversupply of energy, uh, you know, nuisance and problem in the oil industry, which is, which is flare gas. Uh, and could we potentially uh, you know, solve basically one, one problem is another, another problem solution. And, you know, that's really what we did. We've, we build these mobile modular data centers, uh, at Crusoe and we started a company called Crusoe Energy. Uh, Crusoe builds these mobile modular data centers that, uh, that, uh, consume flared gas on site, um, in the oil wells or at the oil well. And uh, instead of, uh, we're now able to utilize the gas to power these very energy intensive uh, data centers. Very nice. So then how, how are you guys making money then? So we started the business around uh, the first compute application that we were focused on was uh, mining Bitcoin. And mining Bitcoin was a very unique application because uh, one, it sort of creates an instant customer for us. Uh, we don't, you know, right now, you know, the early business development for us was was mostly focused on selling uh, to an oil and gas company where we can find unique gas opportunities where, uh, you know, they, they have excess gas and, and flaring issues. We can take that gas, um, you know, sort of solve a problem for them, enable them to produce their oil in a cleaner and more environmentally friendly capacity. Um, and, you know, there are certain regulatory constraints that they're under as well. And sort of help provide regulatory relief in that in that sense, um, and then on on the you know on the compute side, uh, mining Bitcoin enabled us to uh, basically plug directly into this very large uh, customer um, that you know is kind of this decentralized network, uh, you know, decentralized global payments network in, in the Bitcoin network, um, and so when you're mining, you get rewarded by the network for this validation and, and securing the network. Um, so you're validating transactions and securing transactions that are occurring on the network. You earn what's called a block reward. And that's really our, our form of revenue stream, um, or that, that at least was our, our initial form of revenue stream. Got it. Um, you know, we have, uh, we also generate service fees from uh, the oil and gas companies for uh, providing the service of flare mitigation um, at their locations. And, uh, you know, as we've gotten bigger and as we've grown, uh, you know, we now have 22 data centers operating out in the oil fields. And, uh, you know, we have plans for um, quite a few more uh, here in, in 2020. Um, you know, we're hoping to get to 60 by the end of the year. Um, and uh, so anyway, as we've grown, and as we've developed, we're, we're adding more functionality and we're building out uh, other types of compute applications that can be supported directly in the oil field. So things like uh, training large-scale neural networks, uh, we're building basically a high-performance compute artificial intelligence cloud uh, to support those types of compute applications. Um, and we're able to do it at a very, very low cost because the primary costs associated with compute are energy. Got it. 
So then, so then, I mean, for this, you had like incredible high conviction. I mean, talking about you know going into it. I mean, you went into it like the full leap of faith, all the way in. I mean, you you literally covered the entire seat round of this. Is that right? Uh, yeah. You know, this was. Uh, I, I was super excited about this idea. I, I thought it was a really awesome project to work on. Um, it, it was a very unique thing because honestly, it's a it's a it's, it's very rare where you can. Uh, you know, have them have transactions occur where you have multiple people winning. Um, and you know that we, we this was this was kind of a situation where you have a win-win-win, where the oil company's winning because they're able to produce their oil in a more environmentally friendly fashion, a more regulatory compliant fashion, um, and and just more efficiently. So it's a win for them. Um, it was a win for us because we're able to produce uh, some of the cheapest power uh, in the entire world. Uh, which enables us to produce some of the cheapest compute in the entire world and, and reduce the costs of innovation more broadly. Um, and it's also a win for the environment because we're able to dramatically reduce the emissions footprint associated with producing oil. Um, so that's you know something we're very proud of as well. Um, you know, I I was a big believer in this early on, and uh, you know I was excited about it, and so we, uh, in order to get our initial data center built and the First pilot unit up and off the ground. Um, you know, I funded the first six hundred thousand dollars of of uh, equity capital um, to kind of get the business off the, off the ground. And you know, this was a great setup for us because it uh, enabled us to execute without having to worry about uh, you know collecting a bunch of different small checks from you know a small friends and family round or a small seed round, um, and we could really focus on just you know executing and. You know, we started the company in the summer of 2018. Um, we had designs and, and rolled out our first data center. Um, you know, we got our first oil and gas partner in the Powder River Basin in, in Wyoming, uh, and we installed the data center uh, in you know very you know just after New Year's Day. Um, we started on January 2nd, uh, 2019, and uh, you know it was an interesting day. It was negative 17 the first day we arrived. It was uh, really <laughs> cold and, uh, <laughs> harsh environment. Yeah. Um, because but, for this, you know, how, how much, how much capital have you guys raised today? Chase? Uh, today we have, so we, as a follow on to that, we raised a four and a half million dollar seed seed round, which was basically, uh, you know, the first time we took external capital and then we raised a $30 million series a, um, at the end of 2019. Um, and a $40 million project financing facility um, with a group called Upper 90. So um, between kind of all of those things, it's it's a little over $75 million. Um, we also, we, we had a, you know, we, we've, we've done a quite a bit of a, just because it, our business is, is pretty CapEx intensive. Um, so we've had to do uh, equipment lending as well. Um, so when you bring that in, it's, it's about another $20 million in equipment lending. Um, so. Got it. Got it. So obviously you got a uh, very sophisticated people. You got Founders Fund. You got Bain. So what what have you learned about fundraising? What have I learned about fundraising? I I think uh, fundraising is, uh, I mean, to me it's it, just going through this whole process of entrepreneurship. It it was really incredible to see that. If you have a great idea that solves a big problem, um, you know markets are, it, you know it, it's really incredible that you can you can 
the capital formation process exists and you can get the capital together to to make that idea happen and you know it's it's hard work uh a lot of it is um you know having a good idea having a good plan to execute that idea having a very clear path to execute that idea uh and then you know honestly good storytelling is 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 a major component of it storytelling for sure so so actually this ties into into the next question that I want to ask you that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is I mean knowing what you know now I mean what 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 a remarkable journey uh you know personally and and professionally too as a as a founder uh, especially knowing what you know now you had the opportunity to go back in time and and have a chat with that younger chase uh, and you had the opportunity to give that younger chase one piece of business advice before launching a business what would that be and why knowing what you know now um I think you know I guess uh what would it be and why it's a good question i i you know pe- people always talk about uh you know how much work it is um and you know uh making sure you're ready for that i i actually uh you know i had my first uh my wife and I had our first child uh in in two thousand nineteen and it was kind of I look back on it and I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just very happy that I started the business before we had a kid because it was, uh, it was so time consuming to, you know, start a business. And then once I was already in it, um, you know, we, we had this other thing that came up, you know, we, we had a kid and it just, uh, you know, that's an incredibly time consuming and very, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's a great process, but it, it just takes a lot of time and effort and, And I don't know if I would have started a company right after having a kid. Um, I, I, uh, so I was, I was kind of, you know, happy that I was already into it and I was kind of like, you know, no, no way around it, but, you know, being prepared for, uh, the amount of work and the amount of, uh, commitment that you really have to, uh, exhibit to, you know, make something successful, I think is, uh, something I didn't really fully grasp until, you know, I was, I was really deep in, into it. I hear you. I hear you, Chase. And for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, we have an uh, we have a info at crusoeenergy.com. Um, you know, it's a great way to reach out. Uh, we're we're always interested in uh, you know business development partnerships or uh, you know new customers, and uh, you know please uh, you know we're also hiring, so uh, we're, we're looking for uh, you know talented distributed systems engineers to help us build a low-cost, high-performance compute cloud of the future. Um, and, uh, you know, many, many different uh, roles uh, that are available here at Crusoe. Amazing. Well, Chase, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.